Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson and welcome to the Functional Health Podcast. I interview some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine and I will share with you their stories, their expertise and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to share with you my conversation with Dr. Leke Song. Leke is a GP trained in functional medicine, and today we focus on his story as a GP and how functional medicine has not only changed his clinical practice, but his perspective, leading him to specialize in gut-related disorders. So, without further ado, Leke, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ben. You're very, very welcome. It's really good to speak to you. Um, the first time we actually met was a couple of years ago now at a, a conference with Dr. Tom O'Brien, and you were actively interested in the field of functional medicine. I remember um, I remember very well. Is that one of the first times you encountered this approach? Uh, that's a good question. So I think I've always practiced in a, I would say, naturopathic approach. Um, I just never knew functional medicine existed, although in a way I was practicing functional medicine. But I got to know about functional medicine through a lady called Amanda from Cytoplan. She told me, she said, oh yeah, there is something called functional medicine. I really enjoy it. And as soon as she said that, I went on the internet and I think within a month, I read about 20 books. And I researched every conference around and every meeting, every webinar. And I think the Tom O'Brien's one was probably the fifth one or the sixth, probably. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you've been in the field quite some time then, a few years? Yeah. I mean, I've always had a root cause type approach in everything I do in terms of medicine. I just didn't know, like I said, it was functional medicine. Yeah. Uh, I'd always recommend patients to eat healthy, a healthy diet and probiotics, prebiotics. So, yeah, I always practice in that manner. For but those... the term functional medicine is when I knew about it, when Amanda told me. Mm-hmm. Okay. And for those who are not familiar or who may be new to the podcast, functional medicine is a systems biology-based approach that focuses on identifying and addressing the root cause of disease. How has functional medicine, I guess, changed your practice as a GP? Oh, it's immensely. Um, I'm able to look at the patient in a more holistic manner. Um, so I suggest simple tips and how, which can make a big difference. For example, dietary changes is a big thing in functional medicine. What, what you eat, you know, food is medicine. So before I'd just tend to recommend tablets and you know blood tests but actually once you get into functional medicine you realize there's so much you can do without prescribing a single drug so yeah i kind of get into patients lifestyle what they eat the social interactions i inquire about the sleeping so there's so much i can do within 10 minutes because you talked about there's so much you can do without prescribing. Is that something which you actively do? So rather than prescribing something for a particular ailment, you'll try and use lifestyle approaches, for example, to combat it? Yes. So it depends on what the patient presents with. If, for example, they've got a high blood sugar in a HbA1c of maybe 49 or 50, that's kind of borderline. I wouldn't prescribe in that case. 
I just talk to them about diets. I'll say, do you know you could change your diet and this condition would potentially reverse itself? And they're like, oh, I didn't know that. Or they might say, oh, well, what should I eat? In which case, I then go in and tell them what they should eat. Um, or they have IBS type symptoms. I could tell them what to eat, what not to eat. You know, I could suggest an elimination diet, for example, you know, cut out dairy, cut out gluten, cut out sugar. Mm-hmm. So there's so much you can do in, in especially chronic conditions, of course, not acute conditions. Yeah, absolutely. So since you've been a GP for a while and, and I've come into this kind of functional medicine space, do you feel more practitioners are open towards this kind of functional medicine, lifestyle medicine approach? Yeah, over the last few years, I've seen that. Um, when I attended the AFMCP, mm-hmm. there were so many GPs there, I was quite surprised. Um, so yeah, it's getting more popular, especially with the internet and forums. And yeah, pa- patients are actively investigation, investigating their conditions. So somehow they come across this form of medicine. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things, isn't it? Like, I, because of the internet nowadays, people can look up their condition and potentially find different complementary therapies for that particular ailment and then come to their doctor being like, what about this? Um, so it's quite interesting the way it opens up in that respect, the way doctors, I guess, might have to adapt based on the need of the patient or the want of the patient. Well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, patients come with a diagnosis these days. Um, they come and tell you, I think I've got, uh, yeah, I think I've got IBS. So, and I think this is going to benefit me or my cousin took this drug. So you kind of work backwards sometimes. Mm. I mean, due to time constraints, it seems difficult and maybe more costly and time consuming from the outset, you know, this kind of functional medicine approach, because, you know, you know, from the, the functional matrix, the timeline, it takes, you know, an hour, well over an hour to do a whole background check and, you know, identify symptoms and things. But it seems to me that if you eliminate someone's need for medications, even if it is through your approach of like them coming to you and you, um, doing introducing lifestyle uh, techniques slowly then it's going to be less of a cost in the future to the healthcare system long term not depending on medications right so like statins for cholesterol and blood pressure medications for example and the reason why i pick those out is because they're quite common um or quite prevalent and also relatively simple interventions can be can be highly beneficial for them yeah, absolutely. Um, this is the only way to curb the rise in chronic disease. And let's say, for example, like I'm in surgery and I look at the patient's record and they've got dermatitis, they've got IBS, mm-hmm. they've got tinnitus, they've got bloating, and they've got low mood. As soon as I see a cluster of these sort of symptoms, I sort of think, hmm, it might be gluten here, it might be dairy, it might be something to do with the food. So I could just say, oh, did you know, if you cut out dairy, gluten, sugar, things could get better. And if you ask them the questions, some of them would say, oh, yeah, I didn't know that. I'm going to try cutting out and, and see. Or some might say, oh, I love pizza. I'd never do it. <laughs> so you've got, to, you've got to pick and choose sometimes. And it's always worth just suggesting it. Um, again, with the diabetes picture, you could say, oh, did you know, a slice of bread is, you know, 
three or four teaspoons of sugar, for example. Oh, I didn't know that. Or did you know, if you just ask questions, patients are quite curious sometimes and they'll say, oh, I'm going to go look it up. And sometimes you do have some good outcomes. But some patients just want the drug and that is it, no matter what you say. Uh, you just say, look, my blood sugar is high. I'm not feeling well or I'm feeling low. I just need you to double the dose of my tablets and that is it. Mm. What, do you, what do you think the reason behind that is? I mean, some people are actively willing to change their health and like seek, um, and I hate to use this word, but alternative avenues in order to do so mm. um, and, and improve their health. And then other people just were like, I, I just want a pill. I don't want to change my lifestyle. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think to do the first reason is probably to do with labeling. As doctors, anyway, we are told chronic diseases are irreversible. You know, it's chronically irreversible disease, it gets worse all the time. So I think if a doctor has that mindset and tells a patient, for example, oh, you've got diabetes and you'd have here some tablets and then you'd probably end up on insulin. It's almost a fatalistic type view. But if you kind of communicate it to the patients, actually you could reverse this pathology, then there might be hope. So I think it's giving hope to the patient. You can do something about your disease. Your disease doesn't really own you. You can change the outcome of your disease. Um, and I think also some of the advice we give a non non-specific like a doctor might say oh yeah you just need to lose weight just eat a healthy diet mm -hmm. that doesn't mean anything really to the patient because what's a healthy diet there's so much conflicting information about healthy eating or you might say oh you just need to exercise and the patient might say oh gosh uh, you know what kind of exercise do i do or i haven't got money to go to the gym so not realizing they could use their own body for exercise. They could exercise on the stairs. They could use a chair in the office. So, yeah, I think our communication needs to be a bit more focused and tactful. Do you think that's a um, highlighting a lack of resources available for GPs to to tap into in terms of um, recommending or referring patients to resources and and clinicians? Um, that's the second point. I think. Yeah, I think having certain resources to refer to is one thing but i think we are not trained to give the kind of advice i just mentioned mm -hmm. um yeah. and i think all the guidelines are geared towards medication um, but actually if you look in the nice guidelines um this mention of lifestyle intervention in many conditions but that's just glossed over no one really thinks about it and thinks what advice should i give this patient it seems like a blanket type phrase, lifestyle advice, and that is it. But actually every patient is different and the kind of advice you give a particular patient or patient A is different to patient B or patient C. So that's part of a problem is we don't know ourselves or well, the average GP doesn't know. So yeah, and then the second point is we don't know who to refer to. If we had, for example, nutritional therapists or lifestyle coaches and people like that to refer to within the NHS framework, then I think it'd make a big difference. Right, okay, yeah. So two things, like a lack of resources for one, but also a lack of education that these, these avenues are available and that they're effective as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that's 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 good to point out. And and you t- you spoke about nutrition as well, and it's it's a topic. Obviously, it's it's my passion for one. Um, but it's it's so interesting because a healthy diet, saying what is a healthy diet, can mean different things to different people depending on what what they've read. <laughs> um, yeah. And of course, there there are government guidelines from Public Health England and SACIN, the Scientific Scientific Advisory Committee on Nutrition publish them as well um but then these are different abroad so it's not like globally we have this like a uh, unified view of what should be eaten um and it seems to be different from yeah. nation to nation which is backward almost um i'm not saying that you can't like i i, I firmly believe that different populations can thrive off different diets but it seems to be interesting that we tend to depend on one food over another um yeah, I don't know what what your views are on that, if you have any. Yeah, that's a good point. I think there's no universal diet as such. It's really trial and error sometimes. Um, and I think, yeah, I think it's trial and error. To I mean, there are certain things which are just universally bad, like too much sugar, for yes. example. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, too much sugar is in fact. But I'll give you an example. A patient... Leafy green vegetables might be good. I mean, I, I recommend that to everyone. Or you might say, oh, cruciferous vegetables, they're great, the liver. But then patients might be intolerant to it, mm-hmm. for example. Might make them feel bloated, in which case don't eat them. So I think the first <laughs> step is yeah, <laughs> yeah, is individualizing what's the right kind of food to eat and then try those. And if they, they don't work, then just go to the next one. But some patients think if something is good for them, they should just keep doing it. Mm. It's a bit like medication. Oh, here, here you go. Take take a blood, take ramen pill for your blood pressure. Then they have a cough nonstop. But some GPs might say, yeah, just continue taking your tablets. Or they just feel like they have to do it because the blood pressure would be raised otherwise. So it's it's kind of it's an art and a science. It's like this food is good for me, but then I'll try it out and see how it reacts to my body. So the first step is really knowing your own body. Yes. Yeah. 100%. Always say that, you know, just because a vegetable is a vegetable and might be nutrient dense doesn't mean it's right for you. You know, um, for some people, you know, they can eat, um, mountains of vegetables and be absolutely fine, but they touch one egg and they feel bloated. I'm like, well, maybe, maybe eggs aren't for you anymore. Yeah, you know, and it's just the, identifying those things because quite often people are walking around and their bloating is like a normal thing for them, and it's just identifying what foods trigger that. It doesn't have to be bloating; it could be anything—pain, loose stool, etc. Um, even brain fog. You know, you can have neurological symptoms within the sensitivities to food. So, I guess it's just identifying which foods work for you and following the advice of a practitioner. Like, um, I'm friends with uh, Dr. Rupi Orgula from Culinary Medicine UK and he did the he does the doctor's kitchen and he he talks about this and he's educating doctors through Culinary Medicine UK about the power of nutrition and what you can eat for certain health conditions and I think this is hugely needed right now just from what we've just touched upon and also just to tell, you know, if doctors know the power of nutrition, they can also refer or be more inclined to refer on to dietitianists, nutritionists to help their patients as well, which I think is hugely powerful. Yeah. Um, I follow Rupi on Instagram. It's always cooking delicious food. <laughs> yeah. 
Seems um, to be non-stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I can say it's a new dish all the time. It's yeah. really doing well. Um, yeah, I think patients are sometimes scared to experiment. They think, oh, you know, the doctor told me to do this and I don't want to deviate. But in terms of empowering patients and food, I think we need more health promotion regarding food. For example, we have lots of posters about maybe vaccines or about uh, cancer awareness, prostate cancer, we've got a cough for three weeks, you know, stuff like that. They're all about disease. But there's very, there are very few health promotion. There's not that much in terms of health promotion for well-being as such, which is slightly different to disease. The health promotion is all about kind of disease. But we need more health promotion in terms of homeostasis and yeah, and well-being, like eating this food is good for you, or yeah, just stuff like that. More food uh, base or focus would really help. Mm-hmm. because I think patients don't realize the power of food. So if you told them, or well, some patients uh, cut out this food from your diet or eat this is good for this condition, they probably won't really believe you, the average patient, because they just don't think food has got that power. Yeah. So it's perception. They just don't see it as something which can change their physiology or their well-being. So that's why they probably won't do it. Some mm. of them, anyway. Yeah, I mean, it is an interesting thing. And I think because food doesn't always have the same effect as like a drug would, then, you know, they they don't think of the same thing. For example, if you're going to compare turmeric to ibuprofen, well, one's going to affect you very rapidly, which is the ibuprofen. But turmeric or the the active component curcumin can have an anti-inflammatory effect to the same level almost in certain studies as ibuprofen. But the effect is A, more transient and longer lasting but slower acting is key um and it, it affects different people differently which has to be pointed out as well yeah it's a great point it's speed of efficacy if you like mm-hmm. um yeah everything is fast now you know you've got apps for everything you've got an app for the bank you've got shopping amazon next day delivery or same day delivery so that kind of transcribes into healthcare and patients want things quickly so if, for example, you said, oh, yeah, if you eat some turmeric or artichoke, it's going to help you, your joints. It's a slow process and they don't reap the rewards quickly. It's a bit like investing. You don't see it in the fruits after two years or one year. It takes time. So people are not ready to wait. They want things quickly. So that's part of the disadvantage, if you like, in quotes of food. You don't see the benefits that quickly sometimes. So that's a drawback in them to the mind of some patients mm-hmm. i mean that could be one reason why patients don't seem to listen i guess to what doctors say certainly when it comes to nutrition but what do you think are some of the the key roadblocks with following a doctor's advice for the patient yeah i think the first one is some patients don't understand their condition so if you don't understand your condition thoroughly any advice you give just falls on deaf ears because they don't understand it in the first place. So how's adding more information to something you don't understand going to make a difference? Um, And I think the second point is almost information overload in a way. And the reason is we have 10 minutes Mm -hmm. per consultation. So give the patient as much information as you can within those 10 minutes. Because if you were to focus on small changes, you'd need many consultations. You know, yeah. uh, suggest this. I'll see you in one week. Or you know, 
So got 10 minutes. So you do as much as you can. And then the patient is out of the door. But in a way, you've given them so much information. In fact, it's quite common. A patient will go to see a consultant and the very next day book to see a GP to explain what the consultant told them the day before. So again, the consultant has a clinic. They give you all the information, all the technical jargon. And then, yeah, see your GP in one week. And the GP come and, comes and asks you the same thing. Oh, what did the consultant mean by this? So, yeah, we're giving too much information in one go. And, and another thing, we focus too much on numbers as well. Um, a patient might reduce their sugar level from 50, 54 to 50. Are you talking about HbA1c say, oh, number? Oh, yeah, the HbA1c. Okay, yeah, uh, so which is the 52. average blood, to air blood sugar regulation over three months. Over three months, yeah, the average over three months. And the patient might say, or the doctor might say, oh, actually, yeah, you've reduced it by two points. We need to get it under 48. Or they might say something like that. And the patient might think, oh, gosh, you know, um, I thought I did so well, but I'm still away from the target. Or another thing is trying to get everything within target, even though the patient might feel unwell. Mm. So, for example, a patient with heart failure, uh, the guidelines might say, titrate the dose of a uh, angiotensin receptor blocker, for example. So something like candesartan, they might say increase, titrate the dose. And the patient might feel really weak and dizzy, but then you get some doctors just increasing the doses all the time because they want to get it within target. Yes. So patients might have a negative experience and they just think, oh no, I don't want to see the doctor again. Oh, I won't listen to what he says. Because the last time I increased my tablets, I felt really dizzy and mm. they probably didn't listen. So yeah, there's so many factors. Yeah, that's interesting. So in a way, like just to touch on what you said before with like the focus on, um, what was the first point that you made? So the focus on tr trying to do too much at once. Yeah. Is there a way around that for, for, for example, in your practice, how do you avoid giving the patient too many things to do? Um, that's a good point. Uh, I print out stuff from the internet sometimes, mm -hmm. um, or I can book follow up appointments myself. I can say, I'll see you in a week's time or see you in two weeks time and yeah, print out stuff and give them websites to go to so they can read up themselves. Yeah, because I guess that's quite empowering, right? So you're not just giving a prescription at the doctor, but they can actually go away and read about their condition and learn about it. I know not everyone might be, you know, up for that, but it's there if it's if they would like to. Yeah, I always recommend books as well. You can go on Amazon, buy this book and see what this person said. Uh, yeah, the different different tactics like that. And when you said you, the, the focus on numbers, I guess it, it really struck home for me that the idea that a patient can drop their number quite significantly, but then the doctor being like, oh, it's still not good enough, when really you should almost have like positive reinforcement, like, oh, you did a great job, this is really good, you know, to, and you, but we, we're going to have to work towards this number, but this is a really good step in the right direction, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And what's even worse, I remember a diabetic meeting years ago and we we're talking about diabetes and a patient had essentially reversed their type 2 diabetes. There were the HbA1c, I think, was 42, okay. which is below the diabetic range. And I think before there was 60. 
Might so we have a yeah. And but one of the doctors says, oh, no, they're still diabetic. And I said, well, they can't be diabetic because the HbA1c is within range. And this doctor said, oh, well, no, once a diabetic, always a diabetic. And, and I felt a bit sorry for the patient because during the insurance report or you know, something like that, you're going to put diabetic, but actually they're not because they've reversed it, really. Right. OK, yeah. I mean, is is that something which is is prevalent? Like, if you have type two diabetes and you reverse it or it goes into remission, are mm -hmm. you still classified as a diabetic? I won't class it, but um, I'm not sure if this doctor did. Um, that's a good question. I haven't really asked. I'll ask this question. I don't think you're diabetic because if the insurance report or any other form said what are the sugar levels, if you put forty two, that won't be classed as diabetic. Mm. But That's they might the, have a past history of diabetes, but they're not presently diabetic. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I am uh, rattling my brain for those figures, but that's the pre-diabetic range, I think, right? Normal levels are, are lower. Yeah, it's about 42, I think. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so 40 is really below. Right, okay. That's interesting. What is like an optimal range for HbA1c if you were going to hit one? That I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, so below, that was more of like a just out of interest <laughs> from your below, point of view. Yeah, below 48 is that's what the guidelines suggest. So above 48 is diabetes. So anything below 48. Um, having said that, a very advanced diabetic, 50 or 54 could be normal for them at that point, mm -hmm. because if you try to reduce the sugars too much, they might start having symptoms in some cases. But below 48 is above 48 is diabetes, so anything below is not. Okay, yeah. yeah, I understand that. And then just to touch upon like when you're saying you give the patients resources, I think that's hugely useful, um, especially when you're referring to books and things of that nature. That's something which I've not really heard doctors do before, but I'm sure people do do that. Um, I think books are such a good way to consume information and some of them that are written now are so easily accessible. You know, I keep on banging his drum, but Rangan Chatterjee really, really has nailed it um, in terms of putting accessible information out there to patients. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Not yeah. just patients, just the general public as well. The general public, absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, writing in a way everyone can understand and, you know, taking out all the jargon out of it and just simplifying it that's that's the key is to simplify information hmm. i mean yeah because not all patients are, are open to change or even want to you, you told me about the the person who wants to eat pizza when they might be you know have a have a um sensitivity to gluten and dairy which is not the ideal situation but how have you kind of overcome this scenario All the barriers from yep. patients. Uh... Yeah, yeah, just the, the barriers. Because I was just thinking before, like we, we've mentioned communication with patients, but I'm thinking how do you overcome something if, if a patient is not willing to change or maybe on, on the surface isn't willing to change? Have you managed to overcome that? Hmm. In some cases. Um, I think I kind of pick my battles. It's probably the easy way out. But I think within the first few minutes, you can tell to a good degree if the, if the patient in front of you is open to change or not. Mm -hmm. um, and if you think they might be, um, I normally just ask questions. 
oh, did you know you could take, we could reduce your medication list, for example. And patients, they love that because I don't think any patient likes taking so many drugs. But, oh, how is that possible? I said, yeah, if you just l- lost some weight, your blood pressure could normalize, your breathing could improve, and yeah, you'd look thinner. Oh, right. And then they might then say, oh, yeah, but the last uh, book I read, not that book, uh, the diabetic nurse or Yes, told me to eat this and that, but nothing has made a difference. Mm-hmm. And then I'll say, oh, yeah, what do you eat? I always start with what do you eat for breakfast, lunch, and supper. And then when they say, that, oh, yeah, I eat a healthy diet. And then I say, yeah, what exactly do you eat? Then I go through the list and I tell them where they're making a mistake. And that, oh, I didn't know that. Gosh, I didn't know. And then I book a follow-up appointment. It's, yeah, that's, that's how I kind of do it. But I ask questions and see the replies. Yeah, that's how, that's how you know if to proceed or not. Yeah, just, I, I guess that's just a, the whole thing of actively listening. And it just shows that your experience when you can tell, or it just highlights your experience when you can tell whether or not you're going to get some form of compliance from a patient, I guess, especially when it comes to dietary interventions. Um, and you, you just know that through seeing patients over time, I guess, more so yeah. than anything. You can get a feel of of, of, uh, of the consultation. If a patient or someone comes to you and maybe they want to follow your recommendations, and I guess this goes for like any practitioner having an intervention, but they're struggling, are there any tools that you use to, to combat that? Or any kind of, do you break it down? Or I'll, I'll repeat that question again. Are there any strategies that you use to help a patient who wants to follow your recommendations but is struggling? Um, yeah, so talking about diet, for example, eating, I tell patients learn how to cook because that just simplifies everything. That way you're not depending on food cooked by someone else and you haven't got control of what they put in. Um, and I tell patients to take things one step at a time. You don't lose weight overnight. Uh, your blood pressure won't go down suddenly. It's cumulative steps, so every small step counts. Um, yeah, I think I kind of just... And I explain the condition a bit more to them, and I actually explain how diet actually makes a difference. Like, for example, the weight loss example. I say if you lost weight... Your diabetes might improve, your hypertension would normalize, and your risk of heart disease will go down. Uh, and we have a thing called a Q Risk 2 score. It's a score on the computer where you can actually input the patient's age, the smoking status, if they're diabetic or not, their blood pressure. And it tells you your risk, your 10 year risk of having a cardiovascular event. Mm-hmm. So if you put those numbers in and then say, look, it's 20%. If you stop smoking and if you lost weight, it goes down to 10%. So if they see that sort of thing, then they actually see the different, they, they realize every small change would be impactful, basically. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like sometimes working towards n- numbers, that like when you can quantify health, it's often quite motivating. It certainly is for me. 
like I I track my sleep. I was speaking to uh, Tim Gray this morning, who's like a health fanatic, but what you would call a biohacker. And we were just saying how you can quantify certain health data and work towards certain markers. And I think that's really key. If you show a patient, you can reduce your risk of X, X disease, doesn't matter what it is, to a certain percentage, just through changing these things. That is motivating. Wow. Biohacker, I like that term. Have you not heard it before? <laughs> oh, no, I've heard of I've heard of this term, yeah. Biohackers, yeah, it's quite a, a common term now. <laughs> I know, it never used to be. I mean, if we, I was speaking to him this morning and we were like, because a lot of the things that these, um, you know, but like biohacking is essentially just using tools um, yeah. to, I say tools, it could be anything, any kind of intervention to improve your health, but using a specific tool for a specific purpose. Yeah. For example, people can follow a diet of intermittent fasting and say it's a diet, but someone who's doing a biohack might be wanting to improve their insulin sensitivity because, <laughs> because they want to get away with eating, I don't know, a very carb heavy meal in the evening without raising the HbA1c that much. So they might intermittent fast exercise and then eat that. So, so you won't get much of a rise um, yeah. in fasting blood glucose. But that, um, that is like, I don't, I don't know what you call it. It's like health hacking, right? Biological hacking. Um, yeah. Bio health. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's interchangeable. Um, yeah. but yeah, I find it fascinating and um, that whole field for several different reasons. It's mainly because like, I like tracking like health markers and things like that, but also understanding what tools are available to change them. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't consider myself a biohacker and in any way shape or form but i use many tools which biohackers would use do you know what i mean yeah absolutely yeah I, do you do any of that yourself uh no <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's fair enough fair enough um now you've taken a particular interest in the gut microbiome and its function of late Um, why has this become a focus for you Oh, good question. Because I suffered um, poor gut health myself years ago. Um, so, yeah, I had issues with bloating, IBS type picture. And I tried everything. I saw consultants, I had sigmoidoscopy and all that stuff, mm -hmm. blood tests, everything was normal. And I thought, gosh, I've got to be able to do something. I mean, the experts tell me everything is normal, but I'm not normal. So I just researched. I read everything to do with the gut, tried every supplement on the market. And uh, yeah, that's how I got into it. And doing GP training, I then realized many patients had similar type symptoms. And they get referred to a consultant and maybe they get peppermint oil and that was it. And I just thought, there's got to be something. And my GP trainer, I kept asking him and he said, well, he didn't know. And, and not only the gut, lots of patients who felt tired all the time, no energy, brain fog. There just seemed to be this group of patients and no one could answer the questions. Mm -hmm. And even though they'd seen all these specialists, I thought there's got to be something. There's got to be something somewhere. So I'm missing a part of the puzzle here. So I remember going to... Um, conference in rheumatology because i thought 
yeah, these are the guys who would give me all the answers, you know, aches and pains, tired all the time, joint pain, they've got the answers. But when I went to this meeting, well, a few of them, the consultants were just dismissing these patients in a way. Uh, they were saying, oh, yeah, it's all in the head. And one of the consultants even said, oh, yeah, my wife takes all these supplements, but, you know, I think they belong to the bin. They don't work at all. Really? So they thought it was more psychosomatic than functional? Yeah, that's what this person said. And they just, and we get letters all the time, just see your GP or go to the pain clinic. And that seems to be the answer. Go to the pain clinic or take some amitriptyline or gabapentin. So I knew there was just something I was missing as a doctor. So I started reading all these books and yeah, finally got to where I am. So what was the underlying cause? Because it can be anything with it, with, with the whole IBS. I mean, there's so many functional problems, which could be the cause, right? Dysbiosis, SIBO, um, you know, uh, irregularity, irregularities with peristalsis, things like that. Yeah, I think because I'm very, I'm almost like a creature of habit. So I was eating the same things all the time, lots of pasta. Yeah. <laughs> At the time, I never knew about the gluten connection. So <laughs> that's uh, pasta, pizza. And I wasn't eating that many vegetables looking back. And I think stress levels were very high. I had a cappuccino coffee twice or three times a day. You know, I had the same thing all the time. So I think it was a combination of SIBOs, probably from stress and too much gluten that just caused an inflamed gut, I think. Mm. And from there, things just spiral out of control. So, yeah. I mean, going to Dr. Tom, that was that that's one thing that he does uh, bang on about. I think to his own admission as well, he's uh, he's absolutely fantastic, but he is probably the, the one practitioner, which is the most against gluten. Oh yeah, I've been to I think three of his talks now. <laughs> and he gets so annoyed. He goes, "Stop eating gluten!" <laughs> it's like, oh, gosh, he's losing his temper. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. He's such a nice guy, though. He is. Yeah. He, he is a lovely man. Um, <laughs> yeah, he is. He is funny though. Um, but it's one of those things. And my um, my partner went to go see him talk. Um, irrefutable health in kingston upon thames um, and he did a little seminar there and she was quite surprised by it and she doesn't eat any gluten at this point in time she's gluten sensitive but um just how adamant he was that no one should eat it really and although i don't think it's necessary i can understand where he's coming from because it literally causes gut permeability acutely in everyone yeah, there's that trial which showed uh, the gap junctions the increase irrespective of how much gluten you have, mm. even a tiny drop. It's a really interesting um, topic. I mean, to compound matters, I've got no problems when I go to Italy with gluten. You see, that is fascinating. Do they use yeah, a different I, type of wheat? or? Yeah, I kind of looked into this. I've read lots of articles and I even listened to Alessio Fasano on this issue. Mm -hmm. And there was talk about ancestral weeds and the cultivars might be different. But Alessio Fasano said no, they're the same cultivar. Um, I'm not sure. Is it the gly glycophosphate in them? Mm -hmm. Is it something else? Yeah, when I go to Italy, the first thing I do, I go to a pizza place and get a slice of pizza. No problems, no bloating, nothing at all. But if I get a slice of, eat a slice of bread here or a pizza, oh gosh, 
<laughs> I've got cereal probably. That's so I interesting. Think, I think there's a time of processing the wheat because I interviewed, I talked to a, a pizza man in Italy and they would keep the dough overnight. So like the, a fermentation process. Yeah, it goes on for at least one day. Um, and yeah, I think here, because we're such in a rush, we're so in a rush, they would do things very quickly. So I think that's part of the problem. That could be it. Yeah, potentially. I mean, it's interesting because yeah. I've heard about people tolerating sourdough. Um, recently, I actually just heard a, a, an Instagram live with Professor Robert Thomas, who I'm a big fan of, and my listeners know that. And he was talking about how he can tolerate sourdough bread now, but he can't really tolerate just normal normal bread. And one of the reasons behind that is the sourdough, the fermentation process actually breaks down the gluten quite significantly for those people who can't break it down all that well. Um, and obviously, the longer the fermentation process, the more broken down it is. So people that used to be gluten sensitive can tolerate um, sourdough bread, which has had a fermentation process of 24 to 48 hours. So that would be some like an interesting intervention maybe for you to try as well. Yeah, I've done a bit of experimentation. Yeah, uh, I can have baguettes from Marks and Spencer's, but the ones from Tesco's cause me the most problems. <laughs> So I've done all kinds of experiments on this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even from supermarket to supermarket. Yeah, supermarket like to supermarket. <laughs> yeah, this is okay. Here's a scale of five. You know, Tesco's ten. You know, yeah. So yeah, I mean, because there's so many different factors that can affect the gut. It's interesting that you say like you don't respond to it when you're in Italy because. I guess when you're on holiday, it's likelihood that you're not that stressed and things like that. And we know stress can affect how you process um, foods in general, even if you if even if you do tolerate them quite well most of the time. I'm wondering if this is more to do with like the or or like individuals um, stressed state and cortisol levels over the actual food that they're consuming, if that makes sense. Yeah, it could be because a holiday, your stress levels go down, less cortisol. So that influences the gut. So maybe your gut is more receptive to what you eat at that mm. point. Um, but yeah. And equally, <laughs> maybe you find it. Tesco a, a, a very stressful shopping experience. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> Tesco. No, it's, uh, I'm not sure. I think it's the length of time. I just suspect. I'm not sure why. <laughs> Oh, next time I'd, I'd order, do online. Yeah, my experiment is not over. I need to do an online um, shopping. So yes. I'm not stressed. From yeah, then test Tesco's one after I've ordered it online. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, no confounding factors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the, this interest, like around the gut microbiome and its function, is kind of given birth to this. Because um, I, I looked at your website before, the Gut Health Medic. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so with my own private practice, Gut Health Medic, um, I realized I could do a lot more uh, having a private practice instead of trying to fit everything within 10 minutes. And at some point, I just wasn't getting enough satisfaction. Um, I mean, I still do general practice. But in terms of the gut, I knew I could change things, but then I didn't have enough time to do it. And that's in a way quite soul destroying in a way because i know what the patient has well i suspect i know what they have but then all i can tell them is see a specialist mm. and and i can't do that much i can't do in-depth studies on the microbiome i can't recommend 
the supplements I, I want to recommend. So yeah, I decided to do my own thing and yeah, it's, it's, it's gone really well. It's going well so far. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. So what, what do you feel that you can do in those sessions, which you can't do in the general NHS practice? Okay. So more time. Mm -hmm. I've got an hour and a half, an hour to an hour and a half. So in-depth history, you know, using the matrix, for example, I go through every bit of the history and I can request PCR type stool tests, for example, uh, I can request other functional tests, which are just not available on the NHS. And yeah, I just get to know the client or the patient better. I've got more leeway, more freedom. Mm-hmm. And do you feel that this would benefit everyone or more just the complex cases? Um, I think, I think everyone, uh, Having said that, uh, if a patient came to see me in my general practice um, with bloating, oh, I've got bloating for two uh, two weeks, and then I do a quick history and inquire about the diet, and they're eating the wrong things, nine out of ten, everything will be sorted. If it's a very short history in most cases, yeah. I just eat this, cut this out, do this, do that, and that is it done. But if it's a case which is chronic, they've seen lots of consultants or they've had all these tests, then it'd be quite difficult to manage that in, in primary care. Okay. Okay, that's interesting. I guess like oh, that was a part-loaded question on my part, which is a little bit cheeky of me to do. And I guess the reason why I asked it is because I think a functional approach to most conditions is probably ideal getting to the root cause of their condition. But I understand from your perspective, you're trying to do that anyway. But it's yeah. interesting to note that the limiting factor seems to be more of a time constraint than it is a lack of knowledge or resources, certainly in your case. Yeah, and I think in this, this second, another factor I forgot to mention, a patient who books an appointment with a functional medicine practitioner or doctor is on a slightly different stage of the health journey. Mm-hmm. These are more patients who are aware of the condition. They've done lots of research. They've watched lots of YouTube videos. They know there's an alternative way, in quotes, to make the, the condition better. And they're quite health aware. So that makes things a bit easier in a way. So they're more accommodating in terms of alternative therapies. I know, I know it's a bit of a weird word. But they realize the only way forward isn't pharmaceutical medication. Yeah. yeah. I mean, complementary and alternative therapies is, is still like a taboo subject in some conventional uh, uh, conversations, I guess, or conventional medicine, um, which is a shame, I think, because the, most of them are now heavily backed by scientific research. Yeah. In a way, functional medicine is uh, mainstream medicine, if you think about it, because the test we do, the PCR tests and uh, thyroid function tests and all of this, I mean, that's just normal science. Mm-hmm. It's not complimentary about that as such. More the therapies maybe are. Yes. Some right. of them, anyway. Some of them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, using high dose vitamins and, and herbal therapies, for example, to, to have the same or similar benefits to some pharmaceutical medications for example like you can treat SIBO 
with several different ways. One of them is like, but pharmaceutical intervention is one of them. You can use antibiotics, etc., yeah. to target that, or you can use herbal therapies, which you know when we talked about efficacy, they take a long time, but can be just as as effective. Yeah, and I think it doesn't have to be either or. You know, they 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 both work together. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. people think if you're doing functional medicine, then maybe you're against pharmaceutical for example but actually no realizing what works for what yes i completely agree and there's a danger you know i have this podcast and it's, it is it is about the integration of health practices um, and health practitioners and i don't want to seem like anti-convention because that is not the point because there's many conventional therapies which work exceptionally well for different conditions i just think oh well my my point of view now and it is very open to change and i'm more than happy for people to improve uh, prove me wrong is that chronic conditions need to be looked at differently to get the best outcome in the in the current uh, medical modality that that we live in now or we have now oh yeah absolutely um because in- increasing the amount of medications is not going it's not the answer um so they both work hand in hand if a patient came see with a blood pressure of 210 or 200 over I don't know 100 mm-hmm. then I'm not going to start saying lose weight I mean I would say that but the immediate problem at that point is a high blood pressure yeah get that down they need, yeah they need nifedipine for example or something like that to reduce the blood pressure then with time you then tell them about the long-term uh, methods for example lose weight do this do that eat well and then they might not then have that problem in the future entirely agree something which um has just well i've just thought of it now you you've also written a book which you very kindly sent me and um, which touches upon utilizing the healthcare system to to your advantage or to the to the public's advantage to get the most out of it but what interested me is like i've not really read anything like this before because you talk about all the different types of conditions and explain what all the different numbers mean, the, the quantitative EGFR, for example. Not many people might know what that is, or but you explain that. So anyone with a condition can just basically look at this, understand their condition, but also are empowered to ask their doctor for advice. What inspired you to write a book like this? Yeah, thanks. That's a good question. Um, so... Was a board game idea. A board game idea. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so years ago, I thought, oh, I need to. Okay, so I knew there was a problem with medical knowledge. What I realized with with the advent of the internet, I realized there was an information overload in a way. Mm-hmm. There's there's so much information out there, but the problem is interpreting the information. It's not information. There's information everywhere. So I thought patients were confused. They go on the internet. There's so much stuff. They don't know what to focus on and they didn't know the basics of what they needed to know so if for example you've got shoulder pain you might google shoulder pain and it says gallbladder problem or pregnancy ectopic pregnancy for example <laughs> so the algorithms in google give you everything so i thought what about doing making a board game and it asks some basic questions for people to answer and that way they will learn about health then I thought, oh my gosh, it's going to be quite difficult. I think about six months into it, I was going to write a small booklet that went with the board game where you read the booklet first and have some basic, like, a basic idea. But 
but I tested the board game with a few friends and a lot of the questions they had no idea about. <laughs> and I thought, okay, it's going to be quite difficult. I end up writing a whole manual. And then from there, it just became a book. And I thought, okay, this is the best way. Just forget about the board game and just write a book on how to empower patients. That way they just read the book because you can't read a book to play a game. It's just not going to work. And then that's how I did it. And and over, t- I then started reflecting on my consultations and I realized, yeah, patients didn't really know how general practice works. They didn't really understand the conditions. They were confused about certain bits here and there. So I then remembered all those stories and experiences and yeah, condensed it into this book. It took me a long time, about seven years to write. <laughs> seven years, that is a long time. I know, very long. <laughs> Editing it and changing parts and it's too detailed and it's so much information. It was so difficult, the editing process, because what do you take out, what do you leave in? Yeah, no, I've heard se- several people that come on the podcast say it's, it can be quite an on- onerous process when you get into the nitty-gritty of it. Um, just for the listeners, I'll link to the book in the show notes if anyone wants to check it out. Um. Lucky, I know we're coming up on time, so I just want to ask you the last three questions which I ask everyone that comes on the show, with the first being, how can the NHS become more integrated with the kind of modalities that we talked about today? Yeah, so I think medical training. Um, we need to make diet, nutrition, uh, a key part of medical training. So that way doctors are aware but the doctors have to be aware to be able to impart the knowledge onto, uh, onto patients. And yeah, more health promotion mm-hmm. would focus on diet and lifestyle, very important. Patients see it all the time, you know, in waiting rooms, on TV, on posters, and in the town centre, then they remember. Um, and then, yeah, more referral pathways, more liberty, the GPs to be able to refer to, let's call them alternative health providers. Fantastic. And the second, what is the most impactful change that you've made in your life and why? Uh, tough one. <laughs> Probably becoming a locum. Oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, locum, uh, so it's freelance. Um, I've got more flexibility uh, in working. So, yes, I have more time with my family. I've got two young kids, so I see them more. Yeah, that's hugely important for your health as well. Absolutely. I think relationships are key there. Um, and the last one, which um, before I ask it, I just want, if you could, it would be great if you could tell the listeners where they could find you and what exciting projects that you have coming up. Okay, so you can find me on guthealthmedic.co.uk or you could follow me on Instagram at Dr. Leke Asong, which is D-R-L-E-K-E-A-S-O-N-G. I think next to my name, you've got Gut Health Medic. So if you put that in the search, I think that will come up. Perfect. I'll be sure to link to those um, websites and also Instagram in the show notes. Thank and you. the last question, can you please provide the listeners with three tips to help improve their health and well-being 
from today. Your time starts now. Okay. <laughs> so eat enough leafy green vegetables. Very important. What's enough? Oh, gosh, a good answer. <laughs> good question. I can tolerate. Reduce your stress levels by engaging in the most in hobbies or activities that make you happy. So think about anything that makes you really happy and do much of that. It helps you reduce your stress levels. And I think thirdly, you should uh, prioritize sleep. So sleep is so important. Don't sleep for two, three hours. You just won't be productive and it's not good for you in the long run. Leke, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you, man. I know it's been a long time coming. Um, I do hope that we can do this again soon. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or our website, and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for the editing and Alan Harper for his support. 